You're listening to In Conversation, the podcast from Creative Coverage, with me, Tim Saunders. Today, I'm with the sculptor Liz Watts, who makes sculptures using a range of mediums, from bronze and clay through to cement and papier-mâché. You sound really busy, Liz. What is your favourite medium? It really varies depending on the image I'm chasing. I think I have a great fondness for clay, particularly porcelain, because the end result is so strong. And it means you can make such a variety of pieces. It's suitable for children to enjoy and affordable for children. And you can keep your your range of work right across a very a very wide group of people when, when you come to who it's out there for. Some images I want to keep as a permanent image. And then bronze is, is probably my choice. But that's not really affordable for huge amounts of work. And sometimes I'm just trying to catch movement and colour. And then papier-mâché would probably be where I would go. So very much it depends on my mood I work from having seen something I had an idea and thought to myself you know I could do that but how do I do that how did you first get into sculpture I've probably always been making things since I was really small I sat in mud puddles and made things but you wouldn't have called it sculpture when I was at school and in my spare time I used to visit a local theatre a rep and this was in the days when reps were really small theatres and I got involved with the backstage crew as a teenager and I did a lot of work making props And they were really enthusiastic about what I did, which probably made me feel good about what I did and about making. So at some level, almost always, I first studied it just when I stopped betting because I'd moved house due to all sorts of things. And I I was looking for a way of a bit of a break from what I was doing. And I did an evening course in sculpture in, in Walsall in the West Midlands which I really, really enjoyed. And I returned to vetting and for a number of years, that's what I did. Then I moved to France and then I had three children. Adult education there was really, really good in in art things. And I found a local arts place in a town called Cray, Centre Matisse, where I could study both ceramics and sculpture. And the sculptor came out from Paris and taught and the ceramicists. So there were people from around the world teaching here. And I really loved the, the life work and also the level of creativity that went into the work. In that course, um, a long pose of the model was one turn and 45 minutes, which meant you really, really had to focus. And then you had two weeks with no model. And the idea was you then had to take the work you'd done in that 45-minute pose and turn it into something that was individual and and art and had its basis in being representational, but really found how you felt about the pose and the piece. Do you speak French? When I went out, I didn't speak French very well. But by the time... You've lived somewhere for 10 years and you've had a baby there and you've studied art there. You do. And you've argued politics. So my accent, my children would tell you, is appalling. But my vocabulary is quite good. And everything I studied was was in French. And I would find myself thinking in English and they would have to sort of kick me and say, Lise, Lise, sans parler, en parler, and wake me up to put my French ears on because there'd be conversations all around me. A massive challenge. I think it's good for you, actually. And it, it was good for me as a writer as well. It was good for me as a writer to, to look at how other people feel and the way they put phrases and sentences together. And I actually, I ended up teaching English in French primary schools, which helped me understand my own language better as well I think I'd gone in initially to volunteer to do stories and games and songs with the kids in the primary schools my kids were in because they were all in totally French primary schools 
And then France expanded its teaching to include children from the maternelle, which meant that they had children as soon as they went into nursery doing English for a couple of mornings a week. And the school then, because they were short of teachers, put me forward to be registered in the French system to teach that, which was fantastic because at the time there was no curriculum. I just had one page of A4 for what the children had to do in a year. And I made up my own curriculum from all the books I'd read to my kids and the songs and made up games. It was really interesting, really enjoyable, actually. Do you miss that? I do go back to France. I miss France hugely, yeah. We came back after 9-11 and it was to do with jobs and things. It wasn't that I would necessarily have come back otherwise. I like the things about the French that other people don't like. (laughs) I like the fact that you can argue and you can have a really energetic argument and nobody minds. And the next day they kiss you on both cheeks and like you better than they did before you were rude to each other. It's, (laughs) it's, I, I really do like the fact that you can lay your cards on the table and everybody expects you to. Good on you for learning the language. I discovered people I knew spoke English and never let on to me. <laughs> I'm interested because my husband, because he was flying, spoke much less. I think, wait a minute, you never told me you could speak English. <laughs> uh, the first place I lived was a tiny, tiny village where nobody really spoke English. When my kids went to French primary schools, you just get stuck in, really. I did. <laughs> what pieces were you able to make when you were out there? Well, I did a lot of the base work, work I do now. So I have a lot of figurative pieces that I now keep as the sort of clay sketches and they will arrive in other pieces because the French uh, model, the pose was 45 minutes, which meant you could get quite a dramatic pose held in that time and a lot of emotion, a lot of feeling into it. So all the, these little sketch pieces that I did out there, I still have and they, you, you see recurring figures in my work that will come from that. But probably the main thing is I lived in the middle of a, a French deer forest, really in the middle with no uh, fences around. We had, I think, something like 17 hectares of French forest, which was a short forest which was a, a royal hunting forest in old times and it had red deer and the French really do hunt the deer but because I used to put out salt licks in the spring and carrots for them they would come close to the front of the house which meant I could get really close I did lots of sketching sketching in clay so I have uh, bronze deer work a few pieces that, that come from there the house uh, the wood we lived in was called the, the Bois Mousson which is the wood of the wild mushrooms in English and the deer piece I have is called Don Le Bois Mousson which is in the wood of the wild mushrooms one of the uh, I called the boss because the stags are quite timid because they're hunted if you can imagine them running through the trees with these antlers on their heads and they look like galleons and they're being hunted and they're trying to get under the trees and they really have to be ready to run if you're a stag because your your prize is there on, in your antlers but this doe she was really the boss of the lot and she would come in and I'd lay little trails of carrots to the house and I could get her in the end to within a metre of me though I never touched because that would have sort of broken bond and it was only when it was me at the front of the house she would come because she, she'd over a number of years learnt to, to trust me which was an amazing relationship to have with a wild animal really that you could get so close I, that's, I have a, a piece of writing about the making of my Bois Mousseron piece about my relationship it's a sonnet it's called right, Sonnet to a Friend Ear antennae Eyes alert Muscles tight Guard galleon stag Prize weighted on his head on springboard hooves dust earth with spindle slight, amorphous light shot body that you led. Day by day, by week, by pace, by month, by yard, by year, we closed the gap. Both froze heart and held each other's breath. I fixed to eye, with each in fear to move three steps apart. I strove to carve you from this clay, pull rich memories from clumsy hands. 
Slice legs fine, slippered in the hooves. Full ears velvet twitch, then disbelieving, whittle down limbs line. But my dull hand and wit will always lack the skill to bring you breath from touching back. So I think that answers your question, do I miss France? <laughs> Can you explain your working process? I have a head full of ideas. So what happens is I'll be out and about and the ideas come rushing into me and they sort of mature and then I look at the mediums I'm going to use. Is it porcelain? Will I do it in a, a terracotta clay? What do I want people to see and find in this piece? Is it about colour? Is it about form? I don't do much sketching. I do carve my own rolling, rolling pins for surfaces. So I'll do designs for that, which will be my own drawings. But often what I do is make tiny little bits of testers of surfaces or colours or things that I want to get. I sort of build slowly up. I wouldn't quite say maquettes because they're more <laughs> they look like rubbish to anybody who looked at them. But I build up all these testing bits till I'm pretty sure where, where I want to go and what I want to do with the image working primarily I work with porcelain and porcelain I tell people is a bit like a difficult child you can't make it do something it doesn't want to do you have to bring it around to your way of thinking so before you start building the piece you think about what might happen to the porcelain and the firing how it's likely to behave so you already have started out working out what the problems are going to be before you actually start creating the piece in the hope that you will just catch them porcelain again you have to be very patient with so you have to let it dry slowly it doesn't like being stressed it has a lot of what you call clay memory which means if you do something to it in the building and drying process when you come to the final high firing of the porcelain it will tend to remember that thing so if you bent it in a way it didn't like it will then bend itself back on the final firing so you dry it slowly it means i usually have quite a lot of pieces on the go at any one time to stop myself fiddling so i can be very very patient with the medium and make sure i don't force it to do things at the wrong stage of uh, drying if you're firing something in a high kiln, because again with porcelain, if you open the kiln too soon, you get this lovely cracking noise of the glazers all going. So on the day after I've fired it, sometimes I'll go out for a day just because I know I won't be able to stop myself wanting to have a peek. So the solution is to put yourself in the kiln a good distance apart to stop sneaky peeks when you open the kiln and hear all the glazers cracking, which is, is not a good sound. So you've got to have a great understanding of how each medium behaves. You get it as you work your way through it. You, you learn how the the clay feels under your fingers I would say so you know when it feels at a point when you can make it do a certain bend or a certain twist or slice it or add something to it it's it's almost impossible thing to teach because it's it is very much a case of just a, an awareness of touch you you probably know that my first job was a vet which seems a long long way away from working with clay to people but actually handling animals and examining animals remembering that they're not going to give you many answers other than in barks and bites you do have to develop a very good sense of touch of understanding what you're feeling under your fingers and I think in clay you get something of the same way the longer you work with it and uh, making it do things that the better your your hands talk to your brain and somewhere in between you're almost unconscious of it but also you'll have a fantastic idea of anatomy that most of us have not got and that must benefit your sculpture yeah, my, my uh, animal anatomy is quite good <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, i'd have to admit sometimes i'll see a sculpture of a horse or something somewhere and i'll think no you can't make that joint <laughs> <laughs>
it probably does. It, but it's all, I think um, the anatomy is useful. But I actually quite, the other thing, and I suppose that comes from vetting, you get is a lot of knowledge of body language because you have to be aware of when something might turn on you. So you're watching body language. And that interpretation of body language, I think, is also very useful in sculpture because it's what gives the immediate first image of something on its profile or when you first catch eyes with something and you think, yeah, that talks to me about that feeling or that emotion. And that's that's much more uh, about the body language, even when you're doing animals, really, than about the perfect anatomy. What has been the highlight of your art career? It's been full of highlights. Be- being accepted for the, the art in clay shows, which happen twice a year, which are fantastic. And that came through a process of most amazing luck. And I won the, um, the Sculpture Award at the Society of Women Artists at the Mall Galleries last year the Cavendish Venue Sculpture Award and that was just amazing because the Society of Women Artists show is a stunning show and the work in it is brilliant so to to get an award there just sort of bowled me over really. I met Alan Alt who's the director of Valentine's Clothes in Stoke-on-Trent and he has a little gallery of contemporary ceramics there where he collects artists and he has bought my work to go in there and I'm work in there of mine and it's really lovely to see your work as well go into a gallery of contemporary ceramics the world has been very kind to me in some ways with art i i, I can't complain <laughs> are you working on a particular piece at the moment i'm working on a, a series at the moment because of of lockdown I made a very good New Year's resolution in January which turned out to be about the only one I could have kept which is that I would walk every day for about an hour which I have kept and more than and I walked a lot in the village I live in and this autumn I was it's been a particularly good autumn and I've been collecting leaves looking at the colours and the forms and I've always liked doing work in leaves so going back you'll find I've done a lot of figures leaf-based figures and uh, because I love the colours and the emotion and the feeling but I've been collecting the autumn leaves and making sort of wall hangings and bowls and I'm calling it Monkton Farley lace because the way the leaves hang it is like the lace in the in the area that I live in so I'm doing this series of work and I'm called Monkton Farley lace which are these um, sculpted leaf pieces which range from hangings down the wall to double skin bowls to I've got um a reclining figure so just a whole mixture but using the colors and the textures and some of that is porcelain some of it's porcelain laid on terracotta because the other lovely thing about working in porcelain is it takes color so well and i love color so you can really play with colors if you work on porcelain do you make your own glazes no i don't actually i'm not a glaze maker and the reason partly for that is that because i'm creating images and almost paintings on some of my colored pieces i want constancy and so i'm really happy to buy in of something which I know I've tested, tested on different clays, tested at different temperatures, tested with different overglazes. So I like a product of something which I I can use. And I use so many colours. It would take me a very long time to be able to almost create the paintings that I create on clay. I expect you need to know that you can rely on a particular glaze. I need to know. I need to know because I might, my pieces can be very big and very complicated and I layer the porcelain. I use a lot of platinum to reflect internal surfaces. So I play about with what you see. And then I do all this painting. And if a colour, once you've spent two or three months working on a piece and you put it through that 
porcelain firing because the colors go on one color then another color in the biscuit and i recolor and then you don't see your final color effects until it comes out from the porcelain firing and that's a very bad moment if you worked on something for two or three months to find that a color hasn't behaved mm. as you thought it would behave the i think i've almost learned because although you have these three color stages somewhere in my brain now when i'm painting in the original color onto the greenware i almost can see the final colors so i can mix colors and change colors and almost see what the end result will be and that only comes with experience that comes with handling the same colors over and over again i think and making work and seeing how it turns out and understanding how the colors will come out and how they'll they'll match that's a very interesting i have a bit of writing about this but um, a very interesting bit of research come out that women some women at least and i'd love to think i'm one of them but there's no way of knowing have four um color cones in their eyes so they oh. it never occurs in men which means that they have a much greater perception of color vision and i wonder sometimes if that's why women do this more detailed intricate work this is an actual physical thing you see <laughs> and it's not true of all women but it, it increases your color vision by a power so you suddenly get what might look i think it might look like fiddly work if you can't see the the range of colors going through it anyway it's a really really interesting bit of research that's very very new that uh, the color vision between the two sexes may be may be different and i suppose we had to gather the fruits that weren't poisonous so i'm probably interested may i ask if you have a favorite color purples and reds i like i've always loved purple since i was little but oh, you should always wander into what you don't do i used to do a lot of blue and white and i thought oh no that's a bit lazy <laughs> i'll have to make things harder for myself so in a way what is lovely and this is again something you say how do i work is is can you step away from things that are easy and make something difficult for yourself and see where that takes you and again the more color you pile in or the more you play with color the harder you can make it but also it gives you results that take you into places you maybe didn't think you'd ever go well, that's a very interesting approach i think it makes it challenging yourself never mm. sort of settling for what you know you can do but always thinking right what can i do from here where can i take this now it, it keeps your work alive people who collect my work know that i don't often make the same thing twice it's very difficult to get me to do a commission you know another of those and i think no i've done that <laughs> <laughs> so they also know that if they see something they like it probably won't recur because i'm uh, i'll be chasing the image or chasing what i could do with the clay or a technique or making uh, developing an object and then thinking where can i push that so i i, I don't tend to remake what i've made no. i might play with the idea change what i've done with it change colors in it change the form of it but just to remake the same thing is is rare I would say. When you receive a commission, do you work to a strict deadline? Right, I take very few commissions because my nature is not very good for <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yes, if I did, if I took, I would only take one on knowing that I could work to the deadline. That's okay. why I'm, I'm reluctant to take them on. I Do you yourself work to a strict deadline or I, are you quite relaxed? Oh, no, no, I set myself deadlines. What I, I do, I love putting my work in these installation formats, such as a bedroom or a dining table or a beach or whatever it might be. And when I agree to set one of those up, I set myself very, very strict formats. I know um, I don't want to put something out there which I wouldn't think was good enough. So I, I work myself very hard. When I do an art in clay stand, I will 
know where I want to produce for that and I'll make sure I produce it. So I will have a whole list of pieces I'm going to make and I'm going to work on or the way I want to take an exhibition. I would have had the night before Christmas at Valentine's Close in Stoke-on-Trent this year, but that's now pushed back to, to next year. But I already have, even before lockdown, the work for that was already being made. So I do have pieces sitting in my little gallery here that would have been there because I will start looking two or three months before an installation, probably a bit more, and setting myself deadlines as to work I'm going to get in there and how I'm going to exhibit. And this is, again, where I say, you say, I was saying to you, my work changes. One of the great things about putting your work into an installation format that you set yourself is you realise if you're doing a bedroom, you've got to learn how to do fabric, which I did last year, which is how come I'm doing the leaf fabric this year. Uh, I've developed porcelain cushions and things that would go in that environment and then you'll have little ideas for statements you want to make or little bits of politics and then how are you going to do that I currently have sitting on my banqueting table in my my gallery a piece called Brexit a dog's breakfast which is a very large porcelain dog food tin based on Boris Johnson's greatest misleading food statements I'm covered in little political bits and I love to if I'm doing an installation say a bedroom I've started to build up those pieces as part of a sort of crazy picnic where I wanted uh, food pieces in it and I started to develop porcelain food and then where the image could run with that so simply by giving myself all these dates or events that I'm committed to whether it's the beach or the banquet or whatever it might be I set myself deadlines because if I've agreed to put a show in somewhere that show has to be to a standard that I feel is good enough I'm a terrible deadline setter for myself how has 2020 treated you I had two shows in Wales that lasted four days each Mm. and then I had to work out to get back into Wales to get the work back one was with creative coverage, which was would have been a lovely show in Cardiff at the gate. Then everything has disappeared, really. So seven things have disappeared. It did push me into creating a little gallery space in my own workshop, which was, given the clutter in my workshop, was quite a challenge, which is something I've meant to do for a long time, to have a little exhibition space where people could just come and see my work all the time when I didn't have a, a big show up. So I suppose that's probably a good thing. I live in a beautiful village in the country, so... I have been able to walk, which has been fantastic. I know the countryside and the area around myself probably much better than I did before. It's treated a lot of other people a lot worse than it's treated me, that's what I would say. Uh, I'm lucky in that the Stoke show has been pushed back a year. Art and Clay, I know I'm in to do next year. So I, I know younger, oh, my own kids, I would say it's treated much worse than it's treated me. So as young people just starting out, my, my daughter's a harpist and a performer, and she's very resilient and works in different things now. But that work just dried up. I think um, artists tend to, well, we have to work on our own. If you're a ceramicist, you work on your own a lot of the time. So we're sort of quite used to this rather isolated working pattern. So they do let us out to do shows normally every so often, but not this year. <laughs> and perhaps there might be an image forming in your head uh, relating to 2020 at some point, if it hasn't already. There's um, a few few things I've seen. Whether the funny thing about images, yeah, is they just pop in there one day. <laughs> yeah. Brexit, the dog's breakfast being one, and I just suddenly thought that's a dog food tin. <laughs> so, and then halfway through, you think, what on earth made me think this was a good idea? <laughs> I'll start it so I'll finish (laughs) I'll say thank you to creative coverage that's very kind of you Liz I know it's been very good 
um, for me. Uh, hey, through you, I made contacts to do things on the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in the past, uh, United Society of Artists. Thanks. Yeah, lots of things. You've written some lovely articles. So, yeah, I'll say thank you to Creative Coverage while I'm on the podcast. Thank you, thank you very much for your time. Always interesting. Always a pleasure. I'll send you um, images of Brexit a dog's breakfast. Oh, you. please do. Yes. Hysterical laughter. I've covered it from most aspects. It's a complicated thing. It took me a long time to make. And I have to say, I think that's probably one of the most annoying things about not getting work out this year. Yeah. You have a piece which is so topical. <laughs> I'm working on the next issue of Contemporary Artist magazine. So that's a very timely piece to include in it. All right, I'll send you a series of photos. It's full of, the, I mean, it's a very complicated piece. It's full of little references. It has uh, pork pies coming out the top saying porky pies. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, it's cruel and unkind. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be said, I think. I'm <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Bye.